If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Ruth. There we resume our study this morning, Ruth chapter 2. We will finish chapter 2 today, uh, looking at verses 17 to 23. Uh, but as you know, we, we've been making our way through this book, kind of seeing the, the issue, uh, the, 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 the conflict, the conflict of Ruth and uh, Naomi having lost husband and, and and Naomi, her, her husband and sons, and Ruth, her husband, which was one of um, Naomi's sons, and finding themselves in hard circumstances and deciding to go back to Judah, uh, where they heard the famine had been lifted and there was a, a barley and wheat harvest. And so they've gone there as widows with, with an express problem. They have to eat. They have to live. And it's, it's funny, sometimes we can over-spiritualize things, and sometimes the story is about people who literally just need to eat. Like, they, they need some bread, like literally, not money. They need money. Money is good, but they need to eat. And I love the practicality of what Ruth has been showing us, because underneath the practical reality of they need to live, there are some spiritual themes that flow there. What does it mean to live and, and meet needs in the face of great loss. Like, what I, one of the things I love about Ruth is this, is that life doesn't stop when we find ourselves in the valley of loss and hardship and hurt. We have to figure out ways to live even in the face of great pain. And Ruth's and Naomi's response is to press into the Lord and allow the Lord to compel them in a direction that they needed to go. And I think that that preaches for us as New Testament believers, right? Are, are, are there seasons where we need to stop and lament, maybe just take time to express sadness over something? Absolutely there are. That has to happen. And we should do that. That's healthy. But we also understand that what happens when we've gone through great loss? Well, life happens. We still have to live. And unless Jesus is calling us home too, we still have to get up each day and live and deal with hurt and deal with pain and deal with hardship and deal with all the other things that are none of those things, but that are just part of what it means to be alive. And what I love about Ruth is I want to don't ever forget that while they're laboring in the fields of Judah and of Boaz, they are still dealing with the fact that they've lost. They've lost greatly. It's painful. And yet they have to move. Because in those situations, I feel relatively comfortable saying this, stagnation becomes death. When we stop, it becomes death to us. And so I love just how practical Ruth is. And, and this today we find ourselves, if you're looking at your bulletin on the very back, you'll see I titled it The Gift of Labor, because we don't often think of labor as a gift. We tend to fall into the category, not everybody, but so often they think of people in special or select positions. Those people are gifted and, and their labor is a gift, but actually every aspect of labor that we experience is a gift. It's a gift from God. And in fact, it's part of our humanity, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Without further delay, let's turn our attention now to Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, verse 17. Starting in verse 17, reading to the end of the chapter. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. 
And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning and its power, its richness, its beauty, and its truth. But also, we thank you for its practicality, that it teaches us what it means to live an everyday life, holding you as sovereign, but holding our capacity to live, work, be, and serve in your sovereignty as well. So be with us as we understand this. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You know, some things... Uh, there are some things that are inherent to us as creatures. And what I mean by that is there's just some things that are inherent to who we are. By very virtue of the fact that we live and exist, there are some things that are true of us. And you've heard me say this before, but they're true of us just because we're human beings, not simply because we're Christians, not simply because we believe in God or we profess faith in Christ. These things are true of us because we are human. We are creatures made in the image of God. At creation, God created man in His own image and in His, own, and in his likeness, Genesis 1 tells us. And there were three universal truths that He made true, ordinances over us, that governs all of creation, wicked and saved alike. Those three things are marriage, they are Sabbath or rest, and they are labor. Humans are created to be in marital relationships. And uh, contrary to popular opinion in culture, they are created, especially in marital relationships, to be in monogamous relationships with the opposite gender. That's how God created it. We're also created to labor. God made us laborers. And because of that, we're created for Sabbath, which is rest, Hebrew word Shabbat. And so when we, call, when we call these creational ordinances, as I said, because they govern creation, they're not specific to people of faith. And so when we, th- when we think about marriage, rest, and labor, one of, the, one of the things that becomes easy for people to conclude is that labor is a result of the fall. We have to work so hard because Adam fell in the garden. That is not true. Labor was always a part of God's plan. In fact, if you read Genesis Prior to Genesis 3, Adam is working in the garden. Now, the difference is, is his work is a joy to him. It's a pleasure to him. He doesn't deal with the thistles and thorns and all the things that the curse brought into labor. He labors out of pure joy in the Lord. So when we think of labor, it's not a curse. It is a gift. And labor has always been a means for us enjoying the fruit of that labor. 
But guess what? Labor has also been a, a way in which we glorify God. Labor has always been a means for us to be generous toward other people. So you see, labor is part of God's plan. Adam was given two primary commands when he was placed in the garden. To work, work the land and enjoy its fruit was one command, and don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you go back and you look at the story, two primary commands, work and enjoy, right? Work and enjoy, work and eat, work and receive the bounty, and don't eat of that tree in the center. For in the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That's what God tells Adam. So his labor then was what? It was a way that he glorified God. It was the way that he fulfilled God's command to labor and work the garden. It was also a way in which he was to provide for himself and for what would be his family. It met his needs, and it was an opportunity for him to be a blessing to others. So when we think about labor, labor is a blessing. It's a, it's a way in which we secure daily bread, but it also becomes a way in which we help other people. Because it's so easy for us to let labor be a very self-focused endeavor. And I'm going to come back around to this in a moment. But it, it's easy for us to just assume that my labors are for me. Whereas I think the biblical picture are, yeah, that's true. We do labor to provide for our needs. But it's so much more expansive than that. When we see Booth, or <laughs> Booth uh, I almost called him Booth and Roaz. Ruth and Boaz, they show the beauty of labor and how it's used to bless other people. There, there's this subtle connection between labor. Maybe it's not so subtle. There is a connection between labor and covenant faithfulness. Now, you may wonder how, where I'm driving with this, and I'm going to come, I'm, I'm going to bring this all home here in just a minute, but I'm going to tip my hand a little bit. When you look at all of Boaz's labors in the field, what enables his generosity to Ruth? The fact that he has labored well and he has some to give. That's the beauty of it. Where does generosity flow from? It doesn't flow from people who just have a largesse or who have a trust fund or who are just independently wealthy. Generally, generosity flows from people who are willing to give out of what they've earned or what they have. That's the principle of generosity. True generosity is giving out, it's oftentimes sacrificial. When we think about labor, many saints are remembered for their labors in the Lord. Labor is common and it's hard, yet it's used to bless others and to display kindness, bring joy to those who faithfully labor. I mean, so many people get uh, disconcerted when they read Ecclesiastes. Well, one of the basic messages of Ecclesiastes is enjoy your labors. The Lord has put you on the earth to labor. Your labor is not the means and ends of everything that you are, but my goodness, you should enjoy what you do. Brad, are you saying that I should always love my work? No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, you should love the fact that God has given you the capacity to do what you do, and in, in a lot of cases, to do it well. Work is hard. When you bring the sin component into all this, it can get even more difficult. So I'm not saying that every day is cotton candy and bubble gum because God made labor. 
But our labors are a gift, and we need not despise our capacity to do what we do because God has put us in that context. Wherever you are right now laboring, it may not be your favorite thing. And if I were just going to give you good old-fashioned American conventional wisdom, I would say, then quit and go do what you love. That's the worst advice ever. I'm sorry, and if you disagree with me, we can have a conversation later. Because I was sitting in seminary, and Dr. Derek Thomas was teaching one of our classes, and he has a Welsh accent. I'm going to try to mimic it if I can. He says, you know, gentlemen, I know you have your principles, and you have all these things you think you'll want to do, and you think the Lord is calling you to do, but can I tell you something? Sometimes you just need a job. And to a room full of young seminarians who had visions of grandeur, we're going to change the world. We needed to hear that. Sometimes you just need a job because a job brings in daily bread. It brings in provision. It brings in stability. It allows us to drop that person who's needy a little bit of extra in a grocery card or buy some, some groceries. It does a lot of things for us. So, beloved I love it when we're happy, but sometimes we have to do what doesn't make us happy to accomplish the things that actually need to be done. Boaz and Ruth show us that. I doubt Ruth's dream in the fields of Moab was to grow up one day and be a gleaner in somebody else's field. And yet, that's where the Lord put her, and that's where she shined. It's a beautiful story. This morning, there's one idea I want for us to see in our text, and it's this, that labor and its fruits are aspects of the Lord's steadfast love, that labor and its fruits are aspects of the Lord's steadfast love. When you look at the paragraph that we've read this morning, just a few minutes ago in Ruth, uh, there, there are three primary principles here that I think are true and evident from this that I want for us to look at this morning. And the first of those is this, is that labor enables us to be generous. And so one of the questions that we have to ask right off the bat about labor in general is why do we labor? Now, our first answer is most likely going to be, well, to provide for our family, to provide for us, to pay our bills, to, to buy groceries, to, to help our kids grow and mature, to do the things, to keep gas in the car, to pay insurance, and the list goes on. Why do we labor? Well, those are, are valid reasons. Those are some of the reasons I labor as well. But the primary reason that we labor, labor is to honor God. The primary reason that we labor is to honor God, and secondarily, to provide for ourselves and to be able to be in a position to give when we can. So when we think about labor, it's not just for personal gain. It's how do I use my labors to serve and serve well? Now, this is not at the detriment to your own life of saying, well, we didn't need groceries tonight, but thank God we gave the money to somebody else who can. That sounds very noble, but it can be very foolish. No, the object of labor is to live in such a way that you honor the Lord and you labor and you put yourself in a position to be generous when you can. When we look at this passage of Scripture, if you look at verses 17 and 18, it reads, so she, that is Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. It's given you a, it's given you a standard of what her work ethic was. She didn't stop when it was hot. She just gleaned in the field until harvest and gleaning were done. That's how you should read that. She gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. 
And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she gleaned, and she also brought out and gave to her what food she had left over after being satisfied. That's making a reference back to her sitting around with the other harvesters eating a little mid-afternoon meal to help placate the hunger. So when you look at Ruth 17 and 18, what does it tell us about Ruth? Well, it tells us that she gleaned, she beat it out, she took it to the city, she brought to Naomi, and she gave it to Naomi. You've got five verbs there that talk about action things that Ruth did. Not sitting back on laurels, not waiting for a handout, not, not playing on the sympathy of others, but actively getting her hand to the plow to say, how can I use what I have to be a blessing to Naomi, to provide for myself, and in this case, I'm going to go ahead and add this one to honor God. So when we think about what Ruth did, Ruth gleaned, it says, about an ephah of, of grain. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But what I love is Ruth has an abundance of grain, and it's not just about self-preservation. It's all about bringing it back home and helping she and Naomi to live and not just be scrounging and starving. So when you look at Ruth, what she's doing is she's embodying a principle of she has nothing. She has a young, strong body. She has a strong back. She has healthy arms. So what can she do? She can go glean grain. And then what can she do with that? She could keep it for herself and tell Naomi, hey, you want grain, you go glean. That's not what she does. She takes her grain and says, this is now our grain. It's a principle of this is not just for me, this is for us. This is not any sort of political statement. It's just a simple reality that the mindset of Christians toward our other people should be generosity, sharing when we can. So when we look at this, what we're seeing, again, I'll come back to it, this ephah of grain, God God has been gracious to these two women, to Ruth and Naomi. He's been gracious to them to lead them to the field where they could glean, to lead them to the field where they would have favor, to lead them to the field where they could glean even more than was required by the law. And so when we think about labors, our labors should lead us toward generosity. They should lead us to be gracious people. When we cling too tightly to stuff in this life, what happens is, is that our labors become our means to personal happiness. We're happy insofar as we can do what we need to do to get what we think it is that we want and give us meaning and happiness. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I don't want you to walk away from here and say, well, the pastor said we shouldn't have a good life for ourselves. We should just be poor and miserable all the time. Eh, that's not what I'm saying. Man, work hard enjoy things in life, provide for yourselves, treat yourself from time to time. But beloved of God, not at the expense of looking for opportunities to be generous to other people. Have an attitude of, hey, I would like to share, or hey, I would like to help, or hey, I would like to provide. Because here's the thing, here's, here's, the, here's the two, the twin things that we have to navigate when it comes to labor. Labor is not a curse, so we shouldn't just get up and say, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. It's not always fun. We don't have to hate it because it's not a curse. But you know what else it's not? It's also not a free pass to be miserly. I work for what I got. If you want something, you can just go work for it. Now, sometimes somebody does need to go work. I see people 
asking for money sometimes, and I'm not talking about any of you in this room, but I see people asking for money at times when I think, why can't you get a job? And there may be legitimate reasons why they can't. So we have to run the balance of being wise, being discerning, but with a posture of generosity and being compassionate. How can we be looking for legitimate ways to bless other people? And I think Ruth does teach us that principle. But when we look at what Ruth did, so if you look at verses 17 and 18, she took it up. It says that she got, in verse 17, about an ephah of barley. And then 18, she took it up, went to the city, her mother-in-law, saw what she gleaned, she brought it out. And I want you to notice now what Naomi says to Ruth, because this is very telling. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Now, she's not doubting that Ruth is a hard worker, but the amount of barley, that ephah of barley that Ruth brings home, Naomi knows wasn't just the product of hard work. She instinctively knows somebody's been generous toward Ruth. Somebody has given beyond what is required. So this points to hard work, and it points to generosity. When we think about an ephah of grain, maybe your Bible tells you it's about 22 liters. So in Hebrew measurements, some of these sound the same. So you have an omer, which is small, one to two to three, four-ish liters of grain. Then you have an ephah that was typically somewhere around 10 to 20-ish liters of grain. And then you have a homer, which is usually gets up into the 100s of liters of grain. So when you look at what Ruth grabbed, she grabbed anywhere from 20 to 25 liters of grain in her gleaning. That's what she brings home. And that would have fed her and Naomi for approximately two weeks, give or take. That's a lot of food for two people to eat two to three meals a day. So we can see that Ruth labored well, but it was also the result of somebody choosing to be generous toward Ruth. Ruth had been a blessing to Naomi. So what is God doing for Ruth? He sends her to the field where Boaz will be a blessing to her, not only allowing her to come, up, to come in and, and pick grain, but would also generously bless her. When it comes to blessing... Just what I'm about to say, just let it percolate, because I had to say this to myself all week. When it comes to blessing, we are not as deserving as we sometimes assume we are. So we should recognize that any blessing that the Lord gives us is a blessing worth celebrating. And how do we respond to blessing? By being a blessing to others. Perhaps you've like me and you've struggled. Someone does something blessed, that is a blessing to you personally, and though you wouldn't articulate it out loud, you kind of feel like, yeah, I, I kind of deserve that. I mean, I've been working hard, and, and the Lord has finally taken notice of my labor. I, I admit it. I think that sometimes. And the Lord is purging me of those thoughts because I have to learn that, no, the Lord is just gracious and kind. And so my response can either be selfish, take that blessing and, and, and live like I deserve it, or look for ways to bless other people. And may that be our posture because 
Boaz was impressed with Ruth's blessing of Naomi. He's a blessing to Ruth. Ruth continues to be a blessing to Naomi, and the cycle of blessing goes on. It's a beautiful picture, beloved, that we shouldn't ignore or we shouldn't expect blessing. We should be thankful to God and look for opportunities to be a blessing to other people. So firstly, labor enables us to be generous. Secondly, labor is an extended grace of the steadfast love of God. Labor, and I want us to feel this one, labor is an extended grace, grace of the steadfast love of God. When you look at verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, that is Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, there's that word you've heard me talk about many times before, chesed, chesed, whose steadfast love, literally, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man, or the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now as she's setting up the real, uh, the, the real resolution of the whole book is uh, Boaz is the, is the Goel, the, the redeemer. What I love about this verse is there's some ambiguity here. Do you know the first thing you have to ask is this? Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, who is the he referring to, be blessed by the Lord? Boaz, right? We understand. May he, that is Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness or steadfast love has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, who is the whose they're referring to? Is it Boaz or is it the Lord? I think you can make a grammatical argument that she's referring to it's God's steadfast love working through Boaz. Or you could be really nice and postmodern and split the difference and say it's probably referring to both Boaz and the Lord. I like the idea that Naomi is making a statement about God. Whose steadfast love is she talking about? The steadfast covenant love of God who has not forsaken the living or the dead. They are not forgotten. In other words, Naomi says, we have not been forgotten by the Lord. And this is profound for Naomi because remember, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. We are seeing a transformation in Naomi, and beloved, it should not be lost on us that the impetus in this transformation is as simple as Ruth faithfully laboring in the field. Don't despise the day of humble beginnings, the Scriptures tell us, because they're leading to something more profound than we can, than we can imagine. Of course, we can't imagine it because we can read it. They don't know it yet. Remember, this is still unfolding for them. So God has dealt with them in steadfast love. He's used his servant, Boaz. Boaz has been faithful to be used by God. And so we see this beautiful picture. What is Boaz in this text? He's an ambassador of grace to Ruth and Naomi. What is Ruth in this text? She's an ambassador of grace to Naomi and eventually Boaz and eventually to the genealogical line of Christ. We're seeing these ambassadors of grace. What are we called to do in our lives, especially in our labors? Be ambassadors of grace. How do we communicate and become conduits of the steadfast love of God? Here's how we do it, and it's simple. 
by living where we are and being faithful to the precepts of the Lord, both at home, in our work, in our relationships, and in all of life. Sounds simple. That's a tall order. Choosing faithfulness every moment of every day is a tall order, and we won't do it perfectly. And so we can, uh, one of the biggest problems in addiction when you deal with addicts, one of the biggest issues in addiction is having the addict fall. They fall off the horse, and then they have to battle. Why not just stay down since I'm already down here? And teaching them, no, brother or sister, don't stay there. You get back up, and you begin walking in faithfulness anew. Well, that's the summation of the Christian life. We won't do it perfectly all the time, but the, it's not about how many times we fail. It's about how we respond to those failures. Sometimes I've wallowed in failure. Maybe you have too. And sometimes I've seen the beauty of it's not in the act of failure itself, but it's in how we move forward from this. And I love how labor is a grace. When she talks about the living and the dead, I want us to understand there's a whole redemptive theme that runs through that phrase that Naomi is talking about a rescue, a real rescue of sorts, a rescue of their line. But when we apply this in, in our lives, what we're, how, does, how does the steadfast love of the Lord rescue or come to or not forsake the living and the dead? We're talking about redemption. That the love, the, the love of the Lord, the covenant faithfulness of God is seeing us through redemption. He's going to restore the family line. He's going to save it from destruction. But here's the biblical, here's the New Testament rather theme, that Jesus restores us to God and rescues us from destruction. Now, how did Jesus do it? Well, we point to the cross. We point to the resurrection. We point to the ascension. We point to his earthly ministry. Do you know what one word is that sums all of those up? Labor. The labor of Christ under the love of God. And so when someone ever asks you, hey, are you saved by works? Technically, you can say, yes, yes, I am, by the work of Jesus Christ. That is what saves me. And so God redeems labor in the Son, but I love how in Ruth He's using the simple act of labor to begin to open the floodgates on what it means for people to be redeemed. So labor enables us to be generous. Labor is an extended grace of the steadfast love of the Lord, and labor is an aspect of loyalty and devotion. These last three verses, and Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth stays in Boaz's field, right? It's not that we don't have to do a, a whole calculus problem to understand why. God had guided her to that field. She finds protection in that field. She finds provision in that field. So we're, we're looking at faithfulness. Why would she stay in Boaz's field? Because there's loyalty there. There's commitment to what's right. There's faithfulness. We attach ourselves to people who are loyal, who are faithful, who are generous, 
not perfect, but who are kind and compassionate, who help us grow, who offer some protection and provision of sorts. And so when we look at Boaz's grace to Ruth, what does it compel in her? Well, it does compel in her loyalty, this opportunity to be devoted. But we continue to look at Ruth as someone who chose labor over idleness. And I can't stress that to you enough. That it's easy to go, oh yeah, well, Ruth gleaned in the field. Yeah, that's nice. But, but she did. She, but she did glean in the field. She did work a hard job. She did look at everything she did as not just for herself, but for her and another person. She did find a man who was faithful and listen to what he said and accept that this is wisdom and good. I should follow this. And was loyal and stayed in his field. But what I love about this, as I want to, I want to say this real quick, and Ruth, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Why do you think the writer of Ruth thinks that it's important to put that in there? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Ruth had already said, don't urge me to leave. You will return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. What is the writer doing? He's reminding us that Ruth took a vow to Naomi, and she's keeping it in her labor, in her life, in all of her comings and goings. She's keeping her promise. Ruth found success. She could have sought a better way. What is the modern-day term, gold digger? She could have been a gold digger. I don't know that they had that term back then. Maybe they did. I don't know. We do. And she wasn't that. She saw a pathway forward where she could be faithful to Naomi and not break her vow and have grace and plenty in the field of Boaz. This is a beautiful reality because Naomi saw this as a way for Ruth to stay safe. Now you're seeing a give and take relationship. That Ruth not be assaulted, that she wouldn't be assaulted. Look, this is in the period of the judges where each did what was right in his own eyes. It was a real reality for Ruth to go out there and be mercilessly treated embarrassed, shamed, assaulted, and left for dead even because she was a foreigner and people would view her as less than. Boaz didn't view her this way. Naomi didn't view her this way. There was a genuine love and faithfulness that went both ways. And so what I'm compelled to think here is as Ruth is seeking to love well, She's loving well with action, commitment. She's not just, I love you, Naomi. Let's pray to the Lord of harvest that he will provide. I'm sure they were praying to the Lord of the harvest that he will provide, and he did through Ruth. When we do something and we do it well, one of the questions we have to resolve in our minds is, is God's glory in view for me, and is my neighbor's good in view? How am I seeking to glorify God as a teacher, as, as a medical professional, maybe as a, as a lawyer, as someone who labors in a trade, as, as an engineer, 
as any sort of, I'm not leaving anybody out on purpose, but I just realized I couldn't account for every job in this room. So your job too, whoever you are. How do we, are we asking ourselves, is how am I glorifying God through this and how can I love my neighbor well? That's what Ruth compels us to do that. So a primary way that we extend grace and love to others is through faithfully laboring in the context that God has placed us. I do not care for cliches, but I'm going to use one. No, I'm not. Never mind. Uh, I'm not going to betray myself like that because I would, I would have, it would have gone against my own conscience. Be faithful where you are. Let's just say it that way. Be faithful where you are because God has you where you are. I want you to hear me now, and I really want you to hear me. Because what I'm about to say, I do not say lightly. I say it with all the humility I can muster. Because I can look out and I've gotten to walk with some of you as a pastor through some of your stuff. But I want you to hear me when I tell you this. God has you where you are and he has put you there. He has not put you there to treat you unkindly, to make you twist unmercifully, or to make you wring your hands in despair. He has put you there because he knows that where you are at this moment is where you can bring him glory and live for the love and good of those around you. And you have an opportunity to shine with faithfulness, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. I don't always want to hear that. I would love to think that somehow I slip through the cracks sometimes when life gets hard. And it would be easier for me to think this is an anomaly instead of, no, 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 God put me here. For, a, for an express purpose. But beloved, when we can cling to that truth and live it and really believe it and pray for God to give us hope day by day to walk in His mercy and to walk by His grace and in His love, something very ordinarily phenomenal happens. I call it ordinary because it should be the ordinary practice of our lives. But I call it phenomenal because it's outside the bounds of what is natural to us. We have hope, peace, and joy through tears and through hardship because we understand that a better day is breaking in Christ. And so when we look at labor, it's a blessing from the Lord. And through it, we must be a blessing to others. As I said to you, opening this, this message, labor is a basic fiber of who we are. It's part of your humanity. It's part of our DNA. We are laborers by design. Even in Genesis, the goal of labor was to benefit Adam and be a blessing to the earth. In other words, from the beginning, our labor has not been a selfish endeavor. It's always been about something beyond the act itself and about our provision in the moment. So when we think about labor, labor should stand out in our minds because God has shown us His steadfast love through labors, and He compels us, hey, how are you laboring in the fields for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor? That's the question we have to constantly ask. And wherever you're laboring, maybe you have a ministry in our church, maybe you have a ministry outside our church, maybe your ministry is just showing up to your job and doing your job well and with joy, and having other people look at you and go, why? How do you do this? It gives you an opportunity to say, I would love to explain that to you. 
Labor should increase our desires to show loyalty and devotion to God and His people because we can use those gifts to be a blessing, a real blessing. Well, I can't really teach. I can't really preach. I'm not great at at leading Bible study. But you know, the people who work behind the scenes are just as beautiful in God's sight as the people who don't. So labor is a blessing. How are we using our labors to glorify God and bless our neighbor? Ruth and Boaz teach us a beautiful lesson if we're willing to receive it. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning and this time and for this paragraph, this richly simple, practically beautiful paragraph as it compels us into a sphere of what does it really mean to have the gift of labor and to use that for the glory, for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. Oh, Father, may those questions ring loudly in our ears. May they echo in the chambers of our heart. May they compel us to perhaps even rethink what and why we're doing what we're doing and ask us how we might could do those in a more God-honoring, effective way that brings glory to your name. Thank you for Boaz and Ruth. Thank you that by the world standard they are of small account, but in the kingdom of heaven they are heroes of the faith. Help us to walk in faithfulness and commitment to you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.